0: Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you in this session, so stick around and we'll jump right on in. Before we get started this week, I'm proud to announce that Permaculture Magazine of North America has become the first sponsor of this podcast. Incidentally, they've also just celebrated their one-year anniversary this summer, and as the offshoot of the beloved Permaculture Magazine International out of the UK, there is now a regional edition to help strengthen permaculture knowledge throughout North America. This is one of my favorite go-to resources for the latest information on innovation and news in the permaculture world. If you visit permaculturemag.org to sign up for your hard copy subscription today, you'll get the 25-year digital archive of Permaculture Magazine International as a free bonus. And just for listeners of The Abundant Edge, you can now receive 50% off your digital copy subscription right now by finding the discount code in the show notes for this episode. So go now to permaculturemag.org And dive deep into the local and global solutions that go beyond sustainability. Alright, welcome to another episode of the Abundant Edge Podcast. This is honestly one of my favorite interviews that I've yet done, and I'll tell you why. In this interview, I got to talk to one of my heroes in the regenerative farming world, Richard Perkins. Now, many of you probably already know Richard and Ridgedale Farm from all of the amazingly informative videos and seminars that he's put out on YouTube. I personally came across Richard about eight months ago and nearly binge watched all of his material online right there and then. In just a few short seasons, Richard and a small team have taken a severely degraded small farm in northern Sweden, which is at about 59 degrees north, which is uh, around Alaskan latitudes for those of you who need reference in the states. They've taken the site from a mediocre monocrop production into a profitable, diverse, and regenerative permaculture site. That produces veggies eggs broiler hens and a whole lot more with longer term plans of food forests and perennial systems beginning to mature already now i almost never go over an hour in my interviews unless the subject matter is really good so the fact that this one is just over an hour and 20 should really tell you something richard starts by explaining why it's so important to bring back small mixed production farms all over the world and then jumps right into practical and actionable information by going into the seven tenets of regenerative agriculture that he's outlined as the most important aspects to aim for. We also talked at length about how to solve the farm cash flow problem by finding alternative models and markets to sell to, how to intensify rather than merely grow your farm enterprises, how to holistically develop key ecosystems on the farm by building soil, and a whole lot more. This is definitely an interview you'll want to listen to with a notebook on hand. And don't forget to check out the links to some of the projects that we mentioned in the interview on the show notes on the website. So now I'll turn things over to Richard Perkins. Hello, Richard, and welcome to the Abundant Edge podcast. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. Hi, Oliver. Thanks. How are you doing today? Yeah, great. Great to join you. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it's our pleasure. Now, before we get into like the meat of our questions today, could you take a moment to tell our listeners about how you first got into agriculture and specifically regenerative food production and permaculture?
1: Sure. Well, I went to ag school and I was 18. I went into organic agriculture school in the UK where I'm from. And I my journey into making that decision had begun several years earlier, living with and um, some gypsy people in the UK who had intimate knowledge with the landscape that, around them, the Romani gypsies who, you know, know how to survive off and make a living from the landscape. And that inspired me a lot. And I knew from a very young age that I wanted to farm. I didn't know how that would look. And coming in from the UK, land is very expensive and access to land is a big challenge, which is obviously a big issue for people all over the world. Uh, But I went to ag school and did organic horticulture and crop production. And to be honest, it was very disappointing. It was not very advanced level uh, learning for me. And I left with more questions than answers. And so that's when I first came across permaculture and those kind of ideas. And I went traveling and visited a lot of places, talked to a lot of people, but no one could really... Convince me of uh, <laughs> useful ways forward from an agricultural perspective, because my my interest has always been farming. I'm into the whole scene in in some ways, and I'm up for you know smallholding and looking after my own needs too. But I'm always coming from an agricultural perspective, and so naturally I've been you know keeping tabs with larger scale projects and the design of those. Uh, over the years. And yeah, it's been a long journey that's taken me all over the place. But ever since about the age of 18, I knew for sure I would end up farming. I didn't expect to end up in Sweden, in a colder and more expensive country than the UK, to be honest. But access to land here is much easier. And I started a relationship and could afford to buy a farm with cash. And I thought, well, why not? because it's a lot of people were quite surprised I moved here with such harsh winters. we're at fifty nine degrees north here, and so it's really we get about three and a half months without frost guaranteed, and last frost here comes you know June seventh in our little microclimate region where we're in and can come again in mid September, so it's a pretty harsh environment to e-cattle living from the lands, and yeah,
0: uh, really.
1: certainly on a small scale farm but if you can then you get a very long winter to recuperate and to you know plan for the next season and i think something to point out for your listeners is like at this latitude it's you know it's quite different to further down south in europe where in the summer it's only dark for about three four hours and it doesn't really go dark it's dusky so you tend to have this explosive production where you work very long hours in the summer, and in winters the opposite is totally dark, and you know farm chores take a couple of hours a day in the winter time.
0: Yeah, I got a little taste of that season when I did fishing work up in Alaska. It's it's quite mm-hmm. a thing to experience.
1: Yeah, yeah, it it's changes your rhythm of life, and it and it's actually got so many benefits. I mean, it's amazing for pest and disease cycles. I mean, as a market gardener here, we get very few problems that many of your listeners will have just because of the severity of the winter. Um, but it's a it's a pleasurable place to farm. It's a very beautiful country, and I'm, I'm very happy I, I landed here, actually.
0: Certainly. All right, now let's get into it a little bit. As most of my listeners are aware the increase of monocrop industrial agriculture has had devastating effects on our environment as well as our culture. Can you tell me a bit about why it's so important to reintroduce small mixed and diverse farms, much like yours, and the benefits that the return to this form of agriculture bring with it?
1: Yeah, well, it's, you know, as many aspects to that uh, question, but I think that It's really important to, from understanding the history of farming, you know, coming from the UK and, you know, certainly European and American context of these climate zones, it, you know, farming was always small, diverse, mixed farms until, you know, the war efforts, essentially. And there were good reasons for that, for ecosystem processes and maintaining soil health and nutrient cycling and Producing essentially a whole farm menu. You know, something unusual about our farm. We, we're we farming 10 hectares, 25 acres, and that's a very small farm that wouldn't even be considered a farm in Swedish terms. It's it's actually legislation-wise, it's not classed as a farm. And yet we can drive several full-time salaries out of this in the six-month production season. Mm-hmm. And it's quite... Uh, it's quite important to me to you know the reason I'm farming is primarily to produce my own needs and then I produce surplus to sell and so we're we're farming a whole human diet from dairy to pastured meats to eggs to vegetables mushrooms and and a lot of wild foods that we can harvest here sweden's got an abundance of fish and meat walking through the forest, as well as mushrooms that it's quite famous for. So there's certain times of year where we're not really focused on farming. We're focused on harvesting those wild yields, which amounts to, you know, tens of thousands of euros worth of products. I mean, it's, it's sheer abundance here in the fall. But I think, yeah, from, you know, for me, building soil is just fundamental for the future of any of our agricultural systems. If you're not building soil, it can't go on and it's just not good enough because we have all the knowledge how to do this. People have known how to maintain maintain soil health for a very long time despite all of the uh, rhetoric around you know farming being so destructive. There have been good farmers all over the world for thousands of years and we need to apply modern ecosystem science and systems thinking to some of these old methods many times. A lot of what we're doing is not new. I mean, you know, the pasture poultry models that we run that have been made famous by people like Joel Salatin, these have been operated for over a hundred years now. And and it's often the things we're doing are building on many people's work over generations. Yeah, But I think, you know, if we're truly students of ecology, then we need to start thinking in whole systems. And whole systems require animals, perennial plants, annual plants. And there's no real way around that. If you want to close nutrient cycles and have ecosystems regenerating and building in health and diversity each year, then it's, it's fundamental in my mind to either farm diversely or work closely with immediate, Uh, farms around to create a wider but still closed nutrient loop as it were.
0: Yeah, and I I think it's really important to to reiterate the idea that like this is not new. In fact, it's not even that old. I myself, I'm only one generation removed from my grandfather who grew up on a small mixed farm and watched Mm -hmm. the transition of like when he was a child, he actually saw the first tractor come on the land. And in the 30 years that he remained in farming, by the time he left, there were, you know, satellite tracking, fully automated, large combines that, you know, basically yeah, were that's... controlled by computer. <laughs> and that's that's an extremely fast growth and change of an industry. And you really only have to go maybe one or two generations back to go to a direct source of, of how life and farming worked back then.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's really, I encourage people to read up on the history of the country's agriculture because it's fascinating. But, you know, the beauty of this whole thing is that soil is really easy to build. It's easy to destroy it and it's really easy to build. And there have been people over the centuries of written history that have known how to do that. Right. And have written about it. And they were often, you know, out on the extremes of their culture and seen as slightly weird or doing weird things. But people knew how to do that and I think there's a lot we can gain from looking back you know just the old rotational systems in the country where I grew up worked very well for a very long time until the global food market changed everything you know it worked in the context and the time place and circumstance that it was developed in so I think there's a lot can be if we're looking to go back to more localized food systems certainly nation-based food systems is a good start then those old methods from before the Second World War in in our European climate would, you know, be a good place to start from and then apply some modern systems thinking to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to try and unpack this term regenerative farming for a second because there's a lot that goes into it. And I've seen in one of your online seminars that you have a list of about seven tenants for regenerative farming. Essentially, like the core principles that maybe aren't absolutely essential, but certainly what you would aspire to, uh, to consider your enterprise regenerative. And if you don't mind, I'm going to kind of list them off one by one. And if you could just sort of help to explain very briefly each one of these criteria and how it sort of affects or works in a practical sense on a farm. All right. So let's start by building soil. Obviously, this is essential.
1: Yeah, for me, everything we're doing must build soil. It doesn't matter if you're growing vegetables, planting trees, raising animals on pasture. Whatever it is, we need to be looking at how ecosystem processes function in the equivalent of the natural version of that system and find a way to build soil. And I think, you know, there's methods for all agricultural enterprises I've ever seen to build soil. The hardest to get our heads outside the box is with annual cultivation and vegetable growing, which is why we have chosen a no dig approach because tillage is the quickest way to burn carbon out of your soil. Certainly. But essentially, yeah, we need to move towards very low tillage or no tillage models for production.
0: And the other thing I think a lot of people don't realize is, you know, if you go out into a piece of land, even if you consider it to be fairly healthy, you go and measure the topsoil and maybe it's a handful of inches or like 10 centimeters or so. And we kind of consider that normal and healthy. But give us a little context as to what you would consider healthy soil depths to be.
1: Well, that's going to look different in different parts of the world. You know, there's reports of Europeans going down to Africa or to America when the great savannas were still there that have usually turned to desert now in both America and Africa. There was ecosystems that had incredibly large uh, herds of bison in, in America or mixed savanna species in Africa where people were shooting thousands of antelope over a weekend off the back of an elephant for pleasure. You know, if you can fire a a loud gun and shoot 3,000 antelope in a weekend, then that gives you an indication of just how dense the animal populations were. Right. And on those grasslands, you would have found 9-meter-deep topsoils, which is now, you know, over most of those regions, 10, 15 centimeters, like you say, and that carbon is all up in the atmosphere. But that looks different in different parts of the world. Here, for example, we're farming um, very mixed soils that were underwater not so long ago uh, in history.
0: Ah, in the Ice but, Ages.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we've gone from, I've been putting videos out this summer as we've done a lot of soil tests. We The treatments we've done in our pastures are primarily animal-based and poultry-based at that. And poultry are really the key animal for small farms, in my mind. Uh, just for the sheer density of animals you can put on the system. But we've mm-hmm. pulled a key line plow through. All of our agroforestry systems are arranged on a key line layout, and we've pulled our key line plow through twice, and we've put a lot of meat chickens and laying hens and also cow and sheep herds uh, following them over our grasslands using holistic planned grazing. And we've built up soil 25 centimeters in three, six months. Growing seasons, and we now have, a, I would say, the best pasture in the village. We had some of the worst land when we moved here because there had been no animals on this farm for several decades. But things transform radically in response to animals, particularly ecosystem processes. Chicken. Yeah, that's
0: a real remarkable turnaround.
1: Yeah, and it's doable anyway. I mean, processes are slow here, so if it's Working here, up this far north, I mean, it's radical what can be done slightly further. South where the temperatures and growth season is a lot longer.
0: Absolutely. All right, let's move on to the next criteria, um, that a farm is holistically managed. What does that mean?
1: Well, to me, that's reflecting back the importance of Alan Savory's work with holistic management, which is primarily decision-making framework. Most people are coming into contact with his work through the grazing of livestock, and and that bit is is important too. Uh, But what Alan's work really gives us is a decision-making framework that allows us to deal with complexity, to make decisions with economy, ecology, and society, which are all complex by nature, i.e. they transform and grow in ways that we can't predict, which as farmers we must automatically work with. And so this decision-making matrix, as it were, allows us to really get clear in our personal and holistic context of what we're trying to achieve in life, what we value in life, what we commit to, to enable us to have that quality of life that we said we want, and then how to design a way to ensure that that quality of life is available for great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids and think in a very long-term perspective. So it it brings us back to a decision-making model. There's testing questions uh, put forward by Alan Savory, who's basically adapted this decision-making framework from military planning. You know, military planning, Mm. obviously they're making very quick decisions in very intense situations. And so he adapted that, decision-making framework for farming you could say or, or for any decision-making that we need in our lives and that's been fundamental to the rapid implementation of our farm and it's made some of our some of our biggest decisions are incredibly fast to make and very useful. we don't sit around trying to make decisions and we haven't ever done that it's, it's very easy to make decisions when you're very clear what you're trying to achieve so I think, for me, it's a big step up for the permaculture world, which has never had a really good decision-making framework or design process. And just to add another part to that, I mean, another big part of my work is key line design, the work of Pierre Yeomans. And that really gives us a structural organization for permaculture design using what's called Yeoman's scale of permanence. So my work really revolves around holistic management, key line design, and permaculture and the synthesis of those three.
0: Fantastic. All right, let's go to the next one. Mimicking ecological processes.
1: Yeah, so it's, you know, that's something that anyone that's familiar with permaculture will be well aware of. And I think it's really important that people get more in tune with the ecosystems they're working in because a lot of the permaculture principles, if you read various books, they're often not grounded in very tangible, relatable formats for people coming into this. I, I see a lot of young people who are aspiring entrepreneurial farmers who are not coming from farming backgrounds. And to be honest, I think I have more hope in the in the future of real integrity food production coming from those kind of people, people that can eke out... A living from, you know, low resources in interesting situations that traditional farmers wouldn't be able to work out a plan for. But some of those uh, lovely ecological ideas we're presented with are not so immediately applicable to landscapes. Like if we're grazing livestock on pasture, we need to study grassland ecosystem. You know, that, that's all we need to study. We don't need to study sort of abstract uh, patterns we need to look at the processes that happen in pristine forests if we want to study agrico- you know agroforestry and put in agroforestry systems and so i think yeah it's it 's obvious we need to mimic ecosystem processes and yeah from a patterns to details way too we need to understand how water works in a global context to be able to understand how to apply it in our unique time, place, and circumstance. And something like key line design really empowers that, particularly with water. Certainly. But there are all all these, uh, you know, this, all of the work of these great people that I've mentioned already, the people like P.A. Yeoman, Alan and Savory, have given us a, a set of recipes that can be combined or some thrown out as they're more or less applicable and allow us to, like, really dive deep into understanding ecosystem processes and how soils really function.
0: Yeah, that's very well put. Uh, Let's talk now about local inputs and outputs. Yeah, that
1: maybe comes across a little vague, but it's, you know, I think we need to move back towards localized food systems. And that's, you know, ties into why I think diverse farming is so important, because, you know, take for example the rise of modern market gardening. It's extremely popular and probably the fastest growing aspect of, you know, agriculture in in this sort of alternative scene as it were. But in those cases the you know, it's very Unless we're looking in a full whole systems perspective, it's very hard to quantify like what is sustainable. You know, if you look at it, the average Facebook feed, you see meat is bad, vegetables good. But when you really unpack it, and certainly from a regenerative ag perspective, I mean, vegetable production is the least sustainable thing out there. It's, it takes the most time and the most important resources to produce the least calories. And actually turning sunlight into grass, into flesh, and exporting nothing but bones off-site is perhaps the most, well, not even sustainable, most regenerative thing you could do. And so it's important that we look at the whole systems to really analyze inputs and outputs, but it's also a more practical um way of thinking about that in terms of food miles you know reducing the amount of diesel that we put on our food as it were and that's where i think you know this new emergence of entrepreneurial farmers are able to embed themselves in the middle of their communities and produce like what the thing that we can do on a small farm like this we can never out compete the economy of scales of industrial farming but we can always out-compete on quality, freshness and locality and so there are leverage points that we have to, uh, to go with and, and more and more people are tuning in to that kind of food production and, and wanting to know where their food comes from So it, it also has so many other little practical benefits of reducing costs you know, reducing the amount of oil and technology needed You know, we we supply thousands of meat chickens and we supply veg boxes to the equivalent of 100 families throughout the season and other meat boxes, etc. And we don't have a refrigerated vehicle because we don't need one because we pick vegetables and they're in the customer's hands within an hour. So we don't need any of that infrastructure or excessive oil or technology to provide the highest quality produce locally. And then, you know, it it really facilitates our customers getting to know us and building that relationship and bond that gives us financial security, ultimately. People that are willing to pay us up front for the season's production to help us manage cash flow, for example.
0: Yeah, and I really like what you mentioned a minute ago about um, how meat systems are actually absolutely essential for a fully regenerative and holistic land model. Um, I know that this is one of maybe the more contested topics when it comes to agriculture, and it can get a little bit tricky because obviously many more calories per square meter can be produced through vegetable or plant production. However, animals end up converting all of the plant matter and biomass that is not bioavailable to humans into something that we can consume at a very high nutrient density, and you know, like you were also talking about earlier, there's really no ecosystem anywhere in the world that has existed without the inputs of animals and basically taking their labor and their inputs as a major contribution to the fertility of those zones.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very clear point, And I think it's actually simpler than, you know, than uh, a lot of people might think, because I think that, yeah, it's it's very true to say there are no animal-less ecosystems. But what I think most people don't understand is just the sheer number of animals that used to roam the planet. And I remember the, what was that project up in Siberia where they're bringing back all the, they want to bring back mammoths and I I fully support that. But they're they're working with bison and yaks and um, Pleistocene Park. Do you remember that one?
0: No, I haven't seen that one.
1: Oh well, that's awesome. These guys are—they're uh, studying. They're scientists studying the permafrost, and they're—they're they're trying to use holistic management to bring back um, Pleistocene era. That's their ultimate goal: is to bring back Pleistocene era. Um, grazing animals to restore the grasslands to stop the spread of the melting of permafrost. But what excited me most about what they have been studying in the fossil records, um, or that, sorry, the bone records, as the ice melts, is they're finding there were one woolly mammoth per hectare, 30 elk, uh, what's what we call elk in American is moose, so 30 moose per hectare and something like 50 deer, all of them on one hectare. That's what they're finding in the riverbanks in the bone records. Now, that's That's the same as, you know, 60 or 100 million bison running around North America or 3,000 antelope being shot over a weekend for fun. You know, those numbers are so off our charts. And I, I... And it also
0: completely dwarfs animal production that we're using horribly consumptive methods to produce. And you could potentially get a ton more caloric value by bringing back these herding animals and managing them holistically, potentially.
1: Yeah, for sure. Now, it's a very complex picture, you know, but it's got to be based on building soil. And that's why we need much more livestock is obvious i mean so much of the damaged land around the world was grassland or savannah land more specifically but i don't think it's a good unit of measure to compare calories i mean that's a sort of, that's
0: you know, it's it's, kind of a, yeah that's kind of a dull way or a very very incomplete way to to measure that i agree
1: yeah i mean uh you know a hectare of corn is pretty empty calories and yeah i don't think they are comparable we know we need meats we we need dairy we need annual crops and we need perennial crops and we need to fit them into the habitats we come from
0: sure and not all the animals that we prefer to eat are the appropriate ones for each landscape that we're trying to regenerate either
1: no, and it's worth, you know, pointing out that all the animals we farm are a very long way from their ancestral counterparts in both right. their habits and their impacts. But we've got to work, you know, with reality with what we've got. But I think an important part of planning and designing farms is to choose the appropriate livestock or enterprises for the scale particularly the scale we're working at, so that we can get that intensity because the the vast improvement that's happened at our farm, which is mind-blowing, is based on the sheer number of poultry we have. You know, if we had 10 cows and 10, 20 sheep running around, there wouldn't be any marked uh, marked increase in the quality of forage or, you know, length of growing season of our grass. I mean, most people have put the cows in in September here, and we've got active grass growing still now in November. We're going to be probably grazing outdoors till mid or late December this year Hmm. and eventually get down to, like, only needing to feed hay two or three months, and that's come from building soil by mimicking ecosystem processes. And I think that's a big part of the animal picture that most people don't get from the ecological perspective is just the sheer amount of animals needed to function with the plants that they evolve with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to number five here. Uh, low oil, fiscal and technical uh, and, and infrastructural inputs on the land.
1: Yeah, well, that one relates to the previous point too, just about, you know, needing less inputs from outside the farm and needing less capital to start up. Most of the people that I've come across who want to get into farming don't have land or don't have money or both. And I think, you know, there are very smart ways to start up. It's what's shaped our farm. You know, we're also a demonstration farm, but it was priority to me to put the farm first. And education came second and say, hey, the farm's got to stand alone and work as a farm. But we also wanted to use specifically enterprises that were suitable to be scaled. They're all modular and can be scaled instantly, some of them, and could be expanded to different climatic contexts within reason. Uh, but to really be, facilitate us to educate people to get started on a shoestring and turn profit in their first year. So every single one of our enterprises can pay off its enterprise investments in the first year and make a profit. And that's revolutionary. You know, that's that means someone in their twenties with 20 grand in their pocket can start up one of these enterprises on rented land and then a good salary, like a really respectable salary from the first year onwards, and that's not how farming used to look, and it's very possible. Not. No,
0: that's a game changer for sure.
1: Yeah, and and the reason I've put low technology inputs is that we're working with ecosystem processes, and that's the only way we can build soil. It's, we need to be observant farmers and you can't produce the results that we've been demonstrating here without that observation and that comes from people paying very close attention to ecosystem processes. Technology and automated systems have their place but they usually turn people off is my experience with working with a lot of people all over the world is as soon as something's automated someone says "Ah, I don't have to check that anymore. And that misses the point. And there's a danger with these automations.
0: Certainly. All right, now let's move to another one that I'd actually like to go into more depth in. And that's having your products certified by your customers rather than some regulatory body.
1: Sure. Well, for me, that's all about the intimacy of management. We actually set a 50 kilometer selling radius around our farm, not for any other reason than, hey, why don't you go and set up a farm 100 kilometers away and do the same? And I'm really interested in this idea of, you know, having a 110 hectare farms around a, a town or city here than having a thousand hectare farm producing some monocultural crop that no one in the city even eats. You know, in my work consulting and doing project design, I've come across farmers producing, you know, thousands of litres of milk out the back door and they don't even drink their own milk. They go and buy milk in the store and this is this is nuts. So I'm interested in... Yeah, that's a broken system. Yeah, I'm interested in putting farms back in the middle of community, and you know, partly to make them visible again, partly to make people more aware of you know what goes into producing their food. But when the customer is free to walk around the farm, free to ask questions, comes to the farm to pick up things, and it's good for business, but it's also good for creating this intimate relationship with local people who basically are going to support us in good times and bad. I mean, we have an interesting selling model where we sell everything pretty much like a CSA up front and helps with our cash flow. But the only reason we can do that is that we know all of our customers and they totally trust us. We're not certified organic and we only buy inorganic feeds and we stick to organic standards except for a couple of things. One example could be uh, in organic standards here, a broiler chicken must be a certain number of days old before it's slaughtered. We have a small uh, approved slaughter facility on our farm and we choose to slaughter birds over several weeks to even out their weights. And We like to do the first slaughter at a slightly younger age than the European standard which wouldn't be allowed if our beds were organic certified. But they're not, so we can do that. And so for me, I need to make those decisions for myself, for what's best for the land, for my customers, for me financially, not some bureaucrat in Brussels deciding some arbitrary number that has nothing to do with the breed of chicken I'm working with. Sure. And my customers don't mind that because I'll tell them that. You know, we're very open and honest about what we do with our customers. We have big opening days and tours just for our customers and really show them and get them excited. Yeah, we get, uh, you know, there's old ladies in the village that get down on their hands and knees and are crawling through the pasture learning things that I wish they knew since they were 10. But I get excited about it, you know. But this is the basis of food security and community food resilience is when people know their farmers and and they can decide and 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 all of our customers really don't care that we're not certified organic because they know we only feed organic they know we're going better than that they are aiming to go beyond that as it were so it's a really important thing and i've done a lot of consulting where i've only ever told one or two people that i think it makes sense that they go down that route just due to the specific marketplace that they find themselves in but here in sweden especially organic certification is not really um, revered. People value local more than they value organic, and that's partly due to propaganda put out by the largest agricultural college in the country. But, Mm. yeah, it's it's important to tap into that, but I would say that that would be my approach across all the countries I've visited. I I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of jaded... Uh, people looking at organic certifications that, you know, anything you can buy in a Western supermarket that's organic is probably not produced in a way that's holistically managed or building soil, mimicking ecosystem processes. Yeah, so, a good ninety yeah, percent of the
0: time, look- at least. Yeah. No, you mentioned that you had sort of solved your cash flow problem by pre-selling most of your products, and I know that at one point, I don't know if you still do it. You had your own currency as well. Could you tell me about how you sort of set that up and how it solved your cash flow problems?
1: Yeah, well, that's, you know, cash flow is the biggest thing to to manage on a farm because driving a profit is pretty easy for most of these enterprises. But managing cash flow throughout the season, especially if you have a complex business like ours, it's much easier if you have a single enterprise, that's for sure. But we have, you know multiple enterprises going on all the time. And in the summer, it's very intense. And there's a lot of uh, costs going out early in the season. Obviously, you're getting products, some of them are only sold later in the year. So cash flow is the main issue. So we wanted to uh, start up in a way where we had a bit of safety, because I was just moving to a foreign country and didn't have any knowledge of the marketplace to begin with or language etc and so we thought we'd apply the sort of CSA model or paying up front for things um, with our pasture poultry so we actually made up a like we knew we could produce birds that average 2.2 2.3 kilos and so what we did is we made like the original swedish currency is called a riksdaler and because of ridge Ridgedale, Ridgedale came about because our property is called Orson, which is a ridge, and we're in uh, Friksdalen, which is the valley of Friken, the lake to the south of us. So ridges mm. and dales is is where we are situated. And so because of the name of the original Swedish currency, we thought we would call it a dollar, and it has this kind of pun in Swedish, it sounds like currency but it also sounds like the farm obviously so we made this little voucher and it was you know a nice little design voucher that's basically you could buy for we're selling about 10 euros a kilo for pastures poultry at the time so you could buy two kilos up front and we knew it would be more than two kilos so we could just settle it on collection and so we put that out and started pre-selling birds and and Pasture poultry is the most scalable of all the enterprises, and it's also the most profitable of any of the enterprises we run, both time and, you know, returns. And it's a beautiful enterprise for people going into farming particularly, which is why I still stand behind it, despite, you know, some of the things I don't enjoy about the enterprise. Because in eight weeks I can turn around, uh, you know, 12 to 15 euros profit from a single bird and so if a thousand people suddenly order birds I can produce them within two months which you can't easily do you can't scale your market garden up and down like that or any tree crops or any larger livestock so it's a really important cash flow moderator so we wanted to put a lot of emphasis on pastures chickens in particular in the first few years because it's very common in the Swedish diet and something I always say to people is like, you've got to really start on known foods that people enjoy to eat not producing weird stuff that no one's seen before because it's very hard to sell at volume in that case but anyway this currency did really well it showed us what the market was and it also attracted the you know Sweden's I. Politely say it's a little bit behind other European countries, certainly in terms of you know regenerative ag and permaculture stuff. And, and so it attracted quite a lot of attention. We got on prime time TV after after the news at dinner time, so that like drove the whole thing forward quite a lot. Mm. And yeah, that was you know just by chance. But then we just started applying that model everything else the same with the vegetables where we took six month uh, subscriptions for the vegetable boxes we produce and then we do the same with our eggs as well because we always have a higher demand for our eggs than we can produce and each year we've just been doubling and we still are at the stage of doubling now so it's it's a really nice way to like, it's become a regular part. My partner, Hannah, does uh, a lot of the – or pretty much all of the customer relations stuff. And, you know, it's time to put out new egg subscriptions. And it's, it's beautiful because people just straight up want to reapply for six months, you know. And it's it's really confirming that we're producing really good quality stuff, that people want to still do that. So. I think it's an important format, but something I would say to be careful with, especially if you're new to farming, because you have to be able to deliver. Now, I came to this with a lot of experience with designing and farming and managing people and farms. And, yeah, you need to know you can deliver what you promise or you lose that entire customer base, obviously.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. Let's quickly go to the seventh and last of those tenants, namely being that ecologically, socially and personally regenerative is the model you're shooting for. How do all those three sort of correlate? And it seems like it's an elaboration on the holistic planning model.
1: Yeah, for me, I think it's really, you know, it's important that we, if we want to move things in a regenerative direction, we've got to be managing long term, both for ourselves and for the landscape we manage, but the community we live in too, and I really love the work of Ethan Rowland and Gregory Landau with the uh, uh, Regenerative Enterprise, really defining the eight forms of capital I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with, but I think you know that's like an extension of that too, in a way, and I think it's it's super important that we manage for all those things, and it can be really. I I think farming is a juggling game. It's really hard to find balance with all those things all the time. But it's certainly something to strive towards. And with the understanding that certainly those key three are all required to be stable if we want what we're doing to be long-lasting and and far-reaching.
0: All right, let's let's shift gears for just a second here. Mm -hmm. With all of the resources that are available to us now through the Internet, Many people are looking into alternative markets to sell their products and their harvest. What advice would you give to folks who have struggled to find a market for their harvest in the past and what have been some of the most successful ways that you found to reliably sell your goods uh, aside from that pre-sell model that you've already talked about?
1: Yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, I think that's very uh, context-specific, really, but I can share a bit of my thoughts. I think, as I said before, I think it's really critical that people start out by uh, producing real food and producing things that people like to eat, particularly. And I think it's very hard to a living out of niche products. I think, you know, like for example, eggs is something that is always done great for us. We peg our price at standard organic prices, and we just can keep doubling. I mean, I never set out to be a chicken farmer, but it's, it's such a standard product. Eggs is something that if you have good eggs that are better than any other eggs for sale, you can't really lose those customers. And so I think the familiarity of products is really important. I must say like where we're situated, we're extremely rural and I think that's part of what makes this place potent for people. It you know, it's a very different thing if you've got a market garden outside a big city or any kind of farm outside a big city. Like we are we are really in the middle of nowhere. We're in the the middle of a triangle between Stockholm, Oslo and Gothenburg, in the middle of you know, the countryside, our nearest town is uh, less than 5,000 people is 25 minutes drive away. And so we have one larger town on uh, about 70,000 people about on the edge of our selling radius of about 50 kilometers. And there's only a few chefs that run, you know, higher end venues that we can sell to in the, the entire food shed that we're selling to. Excuse me. So I think it, you know, in our circumstance, we must produce standard foods and they must be at a price that people are willing to pay. And so we're not catering to particularly high-end or niche things, which I think is the marketplace for a lot of people in this field. And so I think you've got to do your market research, obviously. Uh, but one thing that's come up that's changing the way we do everything, actually, and is changing our subscription model, too, is this RICO model that's coming up. And that's started out of Finland. It's a kind of acronym for fair uh, consumption. And it works in the way that we've been doing sales from the farm the last three years, but it's it's evolved it in, in many ways. Maybe I should take a step back and tell you how we've been selling. Is Not only have we been doing pre-sales, which is quite new, concept here in Sweden, but we've been developing drop-off points, and they are very efficient because selling is half the work of, of producing, really, and we haven't got time for being out of the farm, and because we live so rurally, the marketplaces we have are significantly far away that we don't want to go there for long. And so we built up this idea of drop off points where we turn up. We started even in a McDonald's car park and we, we turned up for 45 minutes with pastured eggs and vegetables. And customers meet us there because it's a convenient place that everyone knows and drop off thousands of years of products in 30, 40 minutes and then get out of there. And we've been developing that model over the last few years with uh, like minded shopkeepers who are very happy for us to come. And park up in their uh, premises where people can get free parking or whatever, because they get the footfall traffic to go buy coffee or bread or whatever else that we don't sell. So, so whatever that's been a model, that's, yeah, precisely. So, that's worked really well and it's cut our sales down hugely. You know, we're turning up between 30 and 45 minutes at uh, two or three drop off points a week and selling all our products like that. So, that's amazing. But Rico, this thing that's taken off has has made that even better, I think, because it's run by Facebook. Uh, it's run via Facebook, and essentially it should become consumer managed. But we've been quite key in setting up uh, the local Rico in our bigger city on the edge of our selling zone. But basically, it's like a farmers market crossed with a drop-off point, and everything is pre-sold. So each week we put a little ad out on this page, and it's very visually based, and you put up photos of what you're selling and the price. And then people – here we have a thing called Swish where people pay on the phone, and some people like to pay by invoice still or whatever. But it it's quite efficient, so people can say, right, I want – 10 bunches of vegetables, these are the types I would like. I want a turkey and half a pig. And then you say, all right, it's this much, and they pay you. And everything is already sold. There's no selling allowed at the actual Rico drop-off. So it's very similar to what we were doing, except there's many other producers now both competitors and complementary products. So there's a lot more attention like, in customers coming to the events. And I think that competition is also really healthy because it drives us all to do a better job, both with products, with selling, with presentation, etc. And it's been really cool. And we're hoping actually to stop selling our CSA boxes and only do uh this Rico bunch model that we've been using for vegetable sales and we also use the the Rico as our regular drop off location so at the start of the year we just said to all of our existing customers hey the this new Rico thing's kicking off we're very happy to come and drop off your products again but we're moving the pickup point to this place and the Rico's always held at a much bigger car park where many people can turn up. So it was very convenient anyway. So all of our customers were super happy about that. And we're hoping to just keep pushing that model because it really needs it needs people, it needs producers that have got energy and enthusiasm to keep hyping it as it were. So we're we're gonna push all our sales down that avenue, I think, which is a really nice model that I think could be adapted and You know, people can collaborate and create their own version of it in other countries, too. It's very efficient.
0: Yeah, that's a very brilliant model that I think, you know, even if people can't replicate wherever they are, can certainly take ideas from and use it to sort of inspire them to at least investigate what might work in their area. Yeah, totally. Now that we're on the, the topic of kind of the business aspect of things, I know for anyone paying attention to the entrepreneurial world, they'll know that the common goal is to build your big your business as big as possible to maximize profits and market impact. I know that you've been an, outsp- an outspoken voice for moving away from this model and actually intensifying rather than growing your enterprises. Can you explain what the difference is and maybe give us an example?
1: Well, I think you know one of the key differences with some businesses and farming is that um, there everything's observation based, highly observation based. B- big decisions are made on tiny observations at random times of day. Often, that time of day I wake up two hours earlier than anyone else is when I see this thing that informs all of my next year's planning in a dramatic way, and. As you scale, you lose that ability to maintain quality, which, you know, is might not be the case if you're producing an electrical good or whatever. Uh, but that's certainly the case with productions. We need intimacy in management. And the other thing is that it takes a lot of time to produce these things. And so by scaling, it doesn't necessarily make things more efficient. It just requires more labor. So you really have to scale according to the time that you can put into it and and the finances and planning behind all that is so critical and it's a big part of the work i do is helping people really look at inputs of time and money to get things to certain scales and it's something i want to write a little pamphlet about i'm hoping to do this winter because i see uh, so many people coming into farming who haven't got farming in their blood or in, in their background uh, find it very hard to find out what kind of enterprises are suitable to their landscape. You know, I've met people that want to set up micro dairies with eight cows on five hectares and there's just no way you can make a living out of that. Hmm. And, you know, so that's a part of my job is uh, reality checking people and, and trying to match the numbers to the quality of life, the money, people want and the amount of time they've got and what we're trying to do at our farm now we're at a crossroads where we're entering our fifth season next year and we're looking to double the revenue from the farm which is already very good and very high but we're trying to bring in more long-term people to the farm that will free up time for us to pursue other parts of our lives and to do that, we're aiming to double revenues without growing the farm at all. And our production numbers are—you know—anyone can find out about this stuff on our YouTube channel or whatever. But they're—they're they're very good, and um, they're very good by European standards, let alone this far north standards. And I just see that—you know—I'm excited now about how to push ecosystem processes and see how far we can push them without becoming uh negative in our uh, impact on the land. And yeah, that intensity is it's much easier to manage. I mean, our farm, as I said, is ten hectares and I can keep my eye on everything going on pretty much all the time. But I've i I've met so many people that are like, ah, oh, we need some more revenue, let's just make fifty more veg beds or, you know, let's just get more of that thing. And it's yeah, that's not the way I would approach farming. It it's very easy to spread yourself too thin and not be able to manage it well enough to keep ecosystem processes heading the way you want or keep the quality of your products more immediately uh, up to the standards that your customers might be expecting. And I just see that, yeah, there's many ways to improve. Like it, basically it's by understanding ecosystem processes that we can really increase um, Productions and some practical bits too. You know, something for example, one thing we've been considering is whether to get a paper pot transplanter to radically improve efficiency of transplanting in the market gardens. And right now, I've pulled back on that decision because I want to be able to pot on transplants, which is way less efficient, but it does allow me to grow much bigger plants and increase the number of rotations in our very short season which is of more value so if the time you know it's then it's a case of like well what extra time does it take me to pot things on and then transplant them manually compared to the time saved but the lower amount of crops I can grow with this faster tool and put that into a financial value and then I can actually make an informed decision you know Mm. and so we're really up on numbers and time and motion studies has been a major part of what we do which has led me to want to write this little pamphlet because I I know all these things pretty intimately now that I think I could do a comparative study of all the different regenerative ag enterprises possible in relationship to scale and time inputs and money inputs and I think it would be really cool it's an idea I've had all year and I'm I'm hoping to sit down this winter and, and pen it.
0: Brilliant. Well, definitely let me know when that pamphlet comes out. I would love to take a look at it. I definitely agree with everything you just said there. And it does require a lot more insight and a lot more observation, which, you know, uh, requires an effort on the part of the person managing it. But I think you're definitely on the right path with, you know, priorities as to how to how to work those enterprises into something that really give you the outputs and the effect on the environment as well as you know the return and profit for yourself without just kind of mm-hmm. lazily trying to make things bigger
1: yeah yeah it feels kind of sloppy and it that's like an old business model in a way i mean we sat down and got pretty clear what we're trying to go for in life and because we are producing our whole human diet here on the farm we don't actually need a lot. Our, our living costs uh, a few thousand euros a year, and we'll be out of debt within a year from now. We won't owe anything for the farm. So we were clever not to get into debt to do this, you know. So if you mm-hmm. can keep those input costs low, then you don't need to produce so much, you know. So profitable and how much money, it's all relative. And, yeah, there's no point. Like, for us to grow the business much more, we just need to be paying salaries, which in Sweden... You know, you need sixty, seventy thousand 70,000 euros in the business just to pay a basic salary. So
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It's a lot of product to make from a small farm.
0: Absolutely. Now, we already talked a little bit about the cash flow problem that a lot of farmers have, and especially when starting out, and also especially when they're working towards building a biodiverse model, you know, for any of the perm- permaculturists out there. So let's face it: like trees and perennial systems take years or even decades to produce a return. So how do you ensure that your farm is profitable while these long-term systems are getting established? And how do you sort of plan for them that far ahead? Well, that's
1: the you know I feel like it comes down to you know what our intentions and perspectives and long-term goals are. But for me, I'm willing to to front the cost of putting in. Agroforestry systems, knowing that they're not paying back anytime soon, uh, because I, I'm choosing enterprises that support the rapid debt repayment and um, you know infrastructure developments of the farm. So it's all been very carefully calculated, and we set up with the intention to pay off all debts within five years. And to do that, we've chosen high return. Low startup enterprises, and the most profitable of those, all things considered, is pastured boilers. And pastured turkeys are even more profitable, but there's not a big enough market to do that at scale. We do, you know, a few hundred birds, but it's not enough to make significant revenue. Hmm. It's mm-hmm. not a like uh, seasonal thing, like a, where I come from, where people will buy Christmas birds. Here, they eat ham at Christmas. Oh
0: yeah. So yeah. We do some of those, but then... Somewhat culturally culturally specific.
1: Yeah, turkeys, it's a much nicer bird to work with and way quicker to process because they're eight times the size. And, you know, the time spent per kilo processed is much quicker. Ah, sure. But... Pastured boilers is a great one for allowing cash flow within the season, but also very profitable. Uh, you know, to we set up what's one of Europe's cheapest slaughteries and paid that all off as well as all the infrastructure in the first year, and it's so easy to scale that. And then pastured laying birds, very good. It's not quite so profitable, but uh, it's a very nice enterprise for ecosystem processes. I mean, that's what's driven our grass. Uh, regeneration and and very profitable and then great one for building customer bases because people buy eggs so regularly you know people might eat 20 of our chickens in a year which means they might only see us twice but if they're buying eggs we see them either every two weeks or every four weeks we sell eggs in big volumes at a time just to reduce the the selling but we're seeing those customers regularly so it's very easy to bolt on another product to them. And then market gardens is the third. Uh, So pastured layers, pastured boilers, and market gardens are the three main enterprises. And they all produce similar revenues, but the market gardens take triple the time. I mean, that's a lot of human hours goes into that. And then pastured pigs. We do as a sideline. It's it's quite profitable because we get all the spent grain from our local village brewery. So our feed cost is very low. And we raise heirloom pigs in the forest that sell at a premium. They're more like a wild boar in texture and color. And uh, I think the day we bought pigs to the farm, people in Stockholm, which is four hours drive away, were phoning up wanting to eat them. So... There's a big demand for that. That's something we're continuing to scale. And so all of those enterprises are things that pay themselves off immediately, you know, and have different startup costs. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't build their own slaughter facility, I guess, but it's it's actually surprisingly easy once you do it. and. Not a big cost if you do that work yourself, and setting up pastured laying hen operation is super low cost, and market gardens was super low cost. We had to install ponds and irrigation systems that spiked the cost compared to what a lot of people would, but low-cost startups, you know, how do you take 20 grand and turn it into 60 grand in the first year and then grow it to 80 grand the next year, and, you know, And these are models that I think are all quite simple. They're all approachable for people who don't come from farming backgrounds. You know, maybe market gardening is a bit more technical, but, you know, all of them have their technicalities, but I can train someone how to run those enterprises in one season, including all the back-end planning, all the numbers, all of everything. And, you know, people at a lot of our... um, Teams that have been here over the years or course participants are going off and running with their models and and doing good. So it's a really great sign.
0: Yeah, definitely. Especially when you can see that other people are working with the models and the plans that you have and seeing that they're successful for them, you're definitely on to something that's kind of inherently true for others as well. Yeah. So let's talk for a minute about the different ecosystem types that you encourage and care for on your land. Um, I know the biggest one being agroforestry. And I know you also experiment a little with savanna landscapes on, you know, what's a, what's a very modest size farm. And there are, of course, countless benefits for farmers in both of them. But could you talk about just a few of the ways that they're misunderstood or mismanaged and how farmers can turn a regenerative profit from them?
1: Yeah, well, I see that like, the tree systems need to work alongside other systems. So integrating trees with either arable or pasture crops, unless you're into monoculture forestry or monoculture orcharding, which is not, you know, part of the regenerative ag picture in my mind. And
0: for, Right, now we're talking about something different.
1: Right. For me, the... Agroforestry, you know, integrating trees with pastoral systems, there's so many uh, misunderstandings in Europe with, you know, a lot of people value open landscapes and don't want to put trees in, in the open landscape. But the nutrient cycling that's going on between trees and pastoral systems, I've done a lot of research with silver pasture, silver arable systems around European climate zones. And you get these beautiful interactions when you have tightly spaced uh, laneways of trees with either pasture or arable crops in between, including some of the leading European research showing that even plough agriculture can maintain carbon levels in the soil. Uh, if the intensity of the tree plantings is high enough. And here in Sweden, where light is such a limiting factor in our short growing season, I'm trying to just catch as many photons as I can whilst producing additional fruits and berries and nuts and shelter for the livestock that uh, my cash flow enterprise is on the pasture in between. And yeah, we're playing with just standard orchard fruits, you know, apple, pear, plum, cherry, hazels, and berry fruits that all have high value and produce really high riboflavins and vitamin content due to the long sunlight hours here and yeah a lot of farmers have been quite interested in what we're doing because really putting trees i've never been to a farm that's had too many trees and i think a lot of people are nervous to put them into their landscapes because they feel they'll get in the way but if they're designed well particularly in the sort of beautiful parallel systems that key line design is based on then they're not in the way at all and the the benefits by far outweigh any drawbacks but I'm also interested in some one of my pet projects is breeding nut trees I'm taking some of the hardiest nut trees genetics from around the world and just mass planting them and trying to find one of my life goals is to find Castania or the sweet chestnut that will Give mature fruit in this short growing season, and it might be a you know a life work that uh, ends up failing, but someone's got to do it because we need to find staple starch crops that don't require tillage in this climate. Mm. And you know, these are the remnants of the beautiful savanna systems where even today in in the Iberian Peninsula in Europe, you have some of the most expensive food on the planet is the Iberian black uh, pig finished on acorns and chestnuts on open savannas. And, you know, this is 450 euros a kilo. And that's real nutrient-dense food. And so that's my little personal quest. And it's partly on the back of, like Sweden for context, 95% of all trees in Sweden are spruce. It's monocultural, what I like to call vertical desert. What people call forest in Sweden is not forest at all. It's a monocultural spruce plantation or pine plantation. So I'm interested in, in the alternatives.
0: That's a noble and very tasty goal.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, chestnut's one of my favorite trees on the planet. Absolutely. Well, we're doing, we're doing two things with longer-term perspective of forestry. One is we're using pigs as ecosystem triggers to turn our monocultural spruce that we've inherited back to diverse uh, forests. And what's very interesting to me is that if you drive around Sweden, there's nowhere that you see the native forest assembly because everyone's clear cut and done pine or spruce plantation or perhaps birch for firewood. And that's it. That's the only three trees you see around.
0: Yeah, it's unfortunately and not very uncommon in many parts of the world.
1: No, I guess not. But here it's absolute. I mean, that's all that exists. Wow. And so you cannot see you cannot see any area of natural forest. And what happens when I uh, take the pigs through the forest and the, the forest has been cut away is naturally the succession of native species that are all there in the seed bank, it's coming back some of the best timbers that could grow here, like oak and ash. And lime and all the beautiful trees that I would like to you know leave to my kids, so we're using pigs as an ecosystem trigger and and doing a natural Lubeck based forestry system where the input costs are zero, and we use animals to generate profit for the seventy eighty ninety years that the forest grows, but then I'm also planting a lot of nut trees in savanna patterning. Over the top of uh, what we call nutfield on the farm, but now I've started actually intensifying that and putting them into our uh, keyline silver pasture lanes as well as a long-term overstory that will one day replace those uh, fruit trees because. I'm very interested in savannas as uh, optimal production systems in that in our climate where we are, up to 30% of the ground can be covered by mature nut or masting tree canopies without a single loss of pasture underneath. And so therefore you get the best of both worlds and really optimal production systems capable of stocking really high density animals with a large storable starch or protein and oil crop above that also can be fed to animals if you can't be bothered to pick it up so that's a real long-term vision i have that's you know i'm partly doing it because there's no agricultural institution or government that would pay for that kind of research and it's just going the opposite direction to modern agriculture but if i could leave a you know, a single tree that's capable of producing chestnut to to Sweden, then that would be my work complete, I think.
0: Absolutely. That's a that's a fantastic goal and some really cool experiments that you're working with there. I I can't wait to hear more about them as the years come and you know, I wish you all the best on that for sure. Now we've talked about a ton of you know, the different enterprises that you have, the planning that goes into it, the market, the business side. And all of this complexity kind of leads me to my last question here. And I know that one of the biggest challenges in the farming lifestyle especially is finding a way to balance all of the tasks that need to get done, a social and a family life and tackling the never ending chores on the business side of things. So I'm curious to know if you've had any trouble with your own work life balance and maybe some methods that you've used to get back on track.
1: Yeah, well it's, a, well, it's a pertinent question because, yeah, I think, you know, anyone running a diverse farm like this is is busy, and each year, as I review my context, the weak point is time, time for family, time for friends, time for relationships, and, and each year I've done something to address that, and this year I'm making quite radical uh, adjustments to that because, i 've not just been running this farm i 've also been you know hosting a lot of people here. just for context for listeners who aren 't so familiar with the farm I mean we knew that the first few we knew we'd be implementing this farm really rapidly um, and we knew that the educational opportunities from setting this up from scratch and and getting it up and running quickly were, were huge. And we really wanted to leverage that because there's very few places in Europe where you can learn about holistic management and key line and agroforestry and on-site processing and market gardening all in like one place that's happening in a visceral way right in front of your face. So we wanted to leverage that and bring a lot of people here and make it open and available to people. But that's required me... You know, full-time educating, full-time farming, full-time managing people, which has been exhausting. And I'm glad we've done it that way. I think it's been amazing, and we've been blessed to have amazing people here and and produced uh, amazing results very fast. But it's, you know, I think for most people setting out on a family farm like this, you would want to spend 10, 15 years doing what we've done in three or four and that's had implications. I've, you know, I got quite exhausted by the end of each season, and yeah, and absolutely. reviewing each, yeah. And I think this year it's just, yeah. you know, right. Okay, I'm not doing that again. It doesn't need to be so intense now. It's like we've set everything up and everything's functioning. So now we we move into a different gear where the people I want that come to the farm to learn, I want them to, um. Learn more about now how to maintain and perfect these systems because we're not installing. We've done all of our major investments. We have nothing else to build or, or do really except to perfect the systems we run. And as we get older, my partner's, you know, approaching 40 and we've got a young baby and I have a daughter in the UK. So it's quite hard to keep up family Interactions and in, certainly in the middle of the growing season. So we're making a big adjustment now to try and attract longer-term people and, uh, you know, make a more stable uh, sort of rhythm to life because it is quite dramatic, the seasons here. It requires long hours in the summer. It's still light at 11.30 at night, and so someone's got to be awake and put the chickens away. <laughs> and, you know... <laughs> And that's do the way it never is. Do they get but to it, sleep? <laughs> not really. We have uh, we have a sheepdog who's pretty useless with sheep, but she is very good at putting chickens to sleep. So that's ah. helpful. But it's but we do long hours in the summer. I think anyone working on the land here would work very long hours in the summer just because it's so light. It's natural sure. to. Sure. And then you shrink back in the winter. but. But that's uh, we're at this. You know, we're actually sat at the farm right now with three weeks left of planning to to come up with a new business structure, and it's something I'm quite excited about because it's the reason this is coming about is to create more time for myself and uh, time for family, essentially, and time away from the farm too. Because it's you know it's something that a lot of people coming here to learn get a real reality check with is like hey it's seven days a week 365 days a year if you have livestock it's you know it's not summer's finished the gardens are packed up and we don't do anything for the winter. It's like things need looking after all winter and it gets down to minus 30 minus 35 here so it, it's can be tough looking after stuff in the winter because there's things freezing up and can't get yeah, out absolutely. of the doorway you know so it's, yeah, it's, we're settling into a different rhythm and, and trying to find ways to keep growing the business by growing its intensity whilst creating more time and, you know, increasing the revenue to have other people join us longer term. And so it's an interesting dynamic. You know, it's quite a different challenge, I guess, than a lot of businesses would have. Uh, but it's fun that's the systems bit of it that I love to do and and I think we're going to produce some nice results so next season will be very different from us there'll be very few people here And we're going to optimize, I'd say most of our enterprises are pretty optimized, but we're looking to just shave time off everything, every operation at the farm to, we've been joking about 40-hour working week, you know, which I think is unrealistic (laughs) on a farm like this, but I think it can be below 60, which is, for me, would be huge. I think, you know.
0: That is, yeah, that is huge.
1: For me, it's huge because it's, i you know, some of the people here are, are putting in very long hours with me, um, right. certainly sort of my closer aides, as it were. But the... You know, I will then come in at night and and run all my other business outside the farm and make videos for YouTube and all this other stuff. So right. it's it's been a bit too much. You know, I, I feel like, hey, I need to look after myself and not – I'm passionate to put stuff out there and share it, but I need to, to get that balance. So right. I think it's a really familiar thing for anyone. You know, anyone even just having a 2,000 square meter market garden, you'll always feel like there's things you – wish you could fit in a day and
0: certainly I can relate the to that with the different jobs I've had too. Yeah. I mean, now yeah, that we're yeah. setting up our farm, things are, you know, really dragging out in a day and you just realize, okay, we have the same amount of time as everybody else and we have to make some sort of realistic limits on what we can do while still maintaining our own health.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Like if your health is getting affected, then like I, I got a point this year where, you know, I got, I started getting exhaustion before the end of the season. And that was like, okay, this isn't, you know, this is not benefiting me. It's, I've got to change the way it's got to benefit, benefit everyone here, but it's, it's definitely got to benefit me. And it's, I've been extending myself too much these years to try and share this with a lot of people. And it's been amazing, but I, I'm reeling it back in now. And And that feels really good. And, yeah, I think it's, it's good to be real about that and to keep revisiting context because it's, you know, it's easy to push yourself too far. And I think it's good to have people around that can check you and say, hey, you know.
0: Yeah. No, that's a great perspective. It's really well said. Now, before I let you go here, I know that you have a new online course for aspiring regenerative farmers. Could you tell me a bit about your new course and what it offers to students?
1: Yeah, well, that's come about from, that's part of this redesign of our context. It's, it's partly to give me more time. We've been having very intensive internships for several months where I'm, you know, freely available till 10 at night for people and trying to get people going with this stuff. I think it's been important that a lot of people come to the farm and get engaged with their senses. But something I've noticed with education is it takes a long time to synthesize certain things. You know, doing holistic management trainings here, it takes people weeks just to start polishing their holistic context for themselves. So I decided I wanted to put all our education online now and be able to mentor people over several months. So it's had different iterations. We've been building it for over a year now and it's kind of, you know, it's like the same no-nonsense approach we have in our book and our YouTube channel. It's not super fancy, you know, filming and uh, animations. It's, it's nice quality, but it's straight to the point and clear and it's information-based. And the idea is it replaces the need to come here. We, we're also responding to a lot of requests like people who would love to come here just can't take the time off or can't travel this far and so it's it's come about for many reasons but the the way we've produced it is it's like you having a big tour with me around the farm looking at every detail of everything so it's like a 50-hour tour of everything we think about and do in reality Also a lot of lectures and, you know, the thinking behind regenerative agricultural design. And, you know, I've done a lot of design work in the past, so it goes into a lot of that. And it's divided into chapters based on the scale of permanence and similar to our books to lead people through a step-by-step process of, like, designing farms for themselves and I'm quick to point out it's not, you know, I've seen a lot of online courses coming out recently and I'm not out to try and cram lots of people into it. I'm not trying to, like, hook people into it. I'm not doing any aggressive marketing of it. It's like, hey, this is something we're offering. If if you look carefully through it and think it's good for you, then go for it. And if, if you're not sure, then don't do it because, yeah, I, I'm not into <laughs> that kind of... Thing I've seen it too much, and it's not where we're at with business or life. So mm. it's for people that wish that they could be here, wish that they could get the back end knowledge of planning spreadsheets and HACC plans for building slaughteries, and you know, and just like have someone who knows a good deal about this stuff them. That's one of my main skills. It's like giving people a kick up the ass, really. You know, it's like, hey, <laughs> did you do that? You know, hey, Check out that spreadsheet. Did you know I'm I'm drilling people always with the back end. Like yeah, get your yeah, spreadsheets yeah. in order and because that's the weakest bits, like the financial planning and decision making. That's where everyone doesn't put enough time or messes up. And the other bits, designing is quite easy. It's easy to design landscapes. <laughs> it's very hard to make business work in reality because most people that are coming into this are new to farming and they're new to running a business. And that's a recipe for heartache and divorce and bankruptcy so I
0: can I can definitely confirm that with the different clients that I've worked with as well as a designer consultant so (laughs) yeah the business side is what everybody overlooks and they think that they can just kind of gloss over and things will work Uh, I'm really glad people like you are putting out resources like this and courses that help people walk through that that part that is usually not included in well, it's not even touched on, for the most part, in the permaculture design courses and most agricultural, or at least, you know, uh progressive agricultural yeah. edu- education, yeah. so...
1: Yeah, it's totally fundamental. So we've done two, just to summarize what uh, we put out, is two different trainings. One is for people that just want information and they can go through it. It's They're both lifetime access, but one of them is totally self-led. You can't email me your questions. You can't get in touch with me. You just take all this information, and if you feel like it's going to be useful, you can use it and keep hold of it for as long as you like. And the other one is... A scheduled program so that the, the the self-led one is being launched 20th of November and then it's just available whenever people want it. and then there's a scheduled training uh, running mid-January to April where each week we'll be doing webinars and then I'll be giving people direct personal feedback on tasks that they have throughout the training so hey you've got to go make your layer spreadsheet and then I'm gonna rip it apart and find all the holes in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so we give templates and guides, and then I'm I'm gonna you know keep pushing people that show up and, and put the time in. I'm gonna push them as far as they want to go. So
0: excellent. That's
1: exciting, and I'm looking forward to that.
0: That sounds wonderful. Um, as soon as I free up a little bit of time in my schedule, I might be one of your students. That sounds like a great course. Well. Okay. Where else can people uh, or where can our listeners go to find more of your online resources? Uh, you, I know you've got the book Making Small Farms Work, and how can they get in contact with you?
1: Uh, there's well we have various things online. Our farm websites with uh, permaculture.com, and then we sell our book and ebook and via making small info, I believe it is, and then we have a YouTube channel that's growing, and I try and just have a really sort of, you know, candid camera approach to life on the farm, and it's, you know, it's it's me walking around, showing you what we're doing, why we're doing it, talking about different things, you know, trying to give people an inside view onto the farm. It's, it's some people really appreciate it, we have amazing followers who actually watch all our videos. And we're not playing a YouTube game. We're just trying to document stuff and put it out there in different mediums so people can take it or leave it. And that's a, a good place for people to find out more, really. You can watch the whole of the season. Yeah, it was different topics from animals to vegetables to business and showing you numbers and getting into the thinking behind some of the stuff. So that's yeah, it. a good place can, to start.
0: You can definitely count me in that crowd. I think I've probably seen all of of your videos by now and you're far too modest talking about like you just walk around the farm and show people what's going on they're surprisingly in depth there's some of the best resources that i found in video form that are actually available for free so great job with that mm,
1: thanks <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: right. well, I, you know it's
1: yeah, that, yeah. And that's not important
0: well again richard thank you so much for making the time today you've been uh very generous with this insightful interview and I just want to say again, thank you for all the resources that you put out there. So much of what I've learned recently and what we are actually going to be implementing on our own demonstration farm come directly from the educational resources that you've put out. So thank you for what you contribute to the community. And I really hope that we can connect again sometime soon.
1: Yeah, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me on, Alvin. yeah, all the best to you with your project.
0: Cheers. All right, you have a good day. So before we wrap up this show for the week, I've got some exciting news about the upcoming months. And I'm joined here now with my good friend and founder of Atitlan
2: Organics, Shad Goodsey. Hey, buddy, what's new? Oh, man, so much is happening. First off, though, I just want to say thanks for having me, man. I really love your podcast. And I actually had a great time doing that interview back in one of the earlier episodes. Anyway, probably what's most exciting is our new collaboration between Atitlan Organics and Abundant Edge. As you know, We've been offering permaculture design courses for over six years now, and they really have become a staple here in Lake Atilan. In particular, though, the intro to permaculture course is just an amazing way for travelers, gardeners, architects, basically anyone to fully immerse themselves in this new paradigm of permaculture design. Like, honestly, you can't take this course and still see the world the same way afterward. man. Yeah, that's It's life-changing. For sure. But like I said... What I'm most excited about is that now, thanks to our collaboration, we're gonna be able to offer your natural building course immediately after every one of our Intro to Permaculture courses. Literally, this two-week offering is like, possibly the most complete package that I know of available anywhere. Basically, with these two courses alone, I think that someone should have everything they need to start their own regenerative project or just their own regenerative lifestyle. That's that's what I'm excited about, man. But uh, yeah, what about you? What's going on? Man,
0: well, you know already that me and the Abundant Edge team are gearing up for a big season as well. I mean, starting in November, we'll be breaking ground on a regenerative farming demonstration site, which is, of course, right down the hill from your farm. (sighs) We'll be building animal pens, a classroom, outdoor kitchens and lounge areas connected to houses, and it's all going to be made out of natural materials. I mean, the site is going to serve as a demonstration farm for perennial and regenerative farming methods for years and years to come. And we'll even be offering courses and internship opportunities to people who want to learn for themselves about how to build with natural
2: materials and set up their own farms. Heck yeah. That sounds amazing, man. And honestly, this is just about the best place in the world to learn all these things, too. I mean, this little town of Sununa in the gorgeous tropical mountains of Guatemala, like right here on the shores of Lake Atitlan, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And on top of that, you have this traditional indigenous Mayan culture that's still rich and alive. And probably my favorite part is that we have this world, international community of alternative people that are open to new ideas and really putting things into practice. I mean, within walking distance of the Bamboo Guest House, you've got loads of things going on. We got the projects that we've already talked about, but you also have yoga retreat centers. You have Charlie Rendell's Natural Bamboo Building School. You have Love Probiotics. You've got Fungi Academy. And honestly, loads more alternative, blow-your-mind type stuff. I honestly just feel like this is where it's all happening.
0: Yeah, man, it really does. And I want to get as many people as possible in on these projects, but we've got to make sure that they've got the skills first. So what do you say? Let's offer a big discount to those who sign up for both courses. I mean, all food and lodging in the amazing Bamboo Guest House is already included in the tuition. So this will be like the best deal that we've ever offered.
2: That's a great idea. Because I mean, people can still take just one course if that's what they're into or if they can't make the full two weeks. But this will actually make the two courses more accessible to even a wider audience of people. That way more people can get the knowledge that they need to get started doing what they want to do. So hey, to all of you listening out there, we really want passionate and driven people
0: like you to come and be a part of the community and the ecosystem that we're building out here. So if you're ready to take the next step and really dive in, there's no better time to invest in yourself by joining us on this journey to a regenerative future. Shad, how can they get in touch with us and see the upcoming
2: events and workshop schedule? For sure. Well, for start, they can either go to Attilanorganics.com and click on the workshops tab, or they can check out abundantedge.com and click on the education tab. Either one of these will get you all the information you need for all of the courses that we're offering in the months ahead. We're really looking forward to working and collaborating with all of you inspired and enthusiastic people out there. But even if you can't make it out yourself, I'm sure you know someone in your network who would jump at the chance to get involved in this positive regenerative and truly life-changing projects
0: so this is oliver Gaucher and chad goodsey inviting you to come and be a part of the regenerative future that we are building can't wait to see you here thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode as always you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at abundantedge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar on the website you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Right now, you can get a discount code for 50% off your digital subscription to the incredible Permaculture Magazine of North America, simply by finding the code under the show notes of this episode. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be a conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info@abundantedge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again on next week's session.